From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Social Security Administration's moving to full-time telework for almost all of its workforce. Employees in teleservice, processing, and payment centers who can work from home are doing that starting today. Employees that can't will be on weather and safety leave. GovExec reports SSA closed field offices to the public last week. The Energy Department's loosening parking requirements for contractors at its headquarters in D.C. because employees are teleworking. Contractors can now buy up to 15 daily parking passes a month for $5 each. FCW reports contractors couldn't park at all before in the parking garage at the Forestal Building unless they carpooled with at least two Energy Department employees. The Air Force won't cancel the first meeting of the Space Acquisition Council early next month. Air Force Space Acquisition official Sean Barnes says even if the coronavirus is still a concern, the department will have the meeting April 8th or 9th. Defense News reports Barnes says the meeting could be virtual. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agencies tested the Department of Homeland Security's telework capabilities. The goal is to let as many federal employees stay home and work from home as possible to slow the spread of the coronavirus. The Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security, Angela Bailey, joins me by phone. Angie, thanks very much for coming on. What are you doing? What are the primary steps that you're taking in response to coronavirus? Oh, thank you, Francis. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to come on and speak on behalf of the department. So at the department, we're really taking a whole department approach and every day we're having multiple calls to collaborate. We're working with leadership, with our uh, ops, um, the medical and occupational folks, facilities, procurement, security, IT, you name it. And so I would say at this point, we have learned to master all of the available tools um, that are out there for us to stay in touch, whether it's, you know, the video connections or it's by phone, email, et cetera. So it's really been a, again, I just can't emphasize enough how it's really been a whole of department approach. You have talked many times in the past about the collaboration that you undertake with the other human capital officials across the components. What does that look like now in a time like this? Oh, it's kind of like a 24-7 collaboration. Um, I know just uh, Saturday morning I got an a email and a call from one of the components HR uh, leaders. And so I think what you'll find is like we've just, what we're doing is just building off of the excellent relationship that we've already had to begin with. And I also want to foot stomp the relationship with OPM and with OMB as well. And actually with the federal agencies, uh, we're hosting calls just to make sure that we're kind of not so much being consistent, but at least understanding how each other is starting to implement things. So, you know, it's not just within DHS. I, I get the value of being able to partner with um, my colleagues across the federal government as well. And I really think that that's what's helping to keep us in sync and getting things uh, accomplished in a pretty timely fashion. Do you think that your experience at OPM gives you not a leg up exactly, but gives you some insight into what a government-wide approach is to a situation like this, Angie? Oh, absolutely. I am, Every day I'm grateful for the fact that uh, I spent eight years at OPM. And it's not just really being at OPM. It's also, again, being able to reach out and know who at OMB uh, that I can get assistance from if I need it or the other um, Chicos that are throughout the federal government. So 
I think what this all boils down to at the end of the day is it's really all about relationships mm-hmm. and, and being able to draw on those relationships and being able to have like frank conversations with each other or to say, hey, this is how we're implementing it in this particular area, but it may not make sense for you, but it does for us. And I've also found that being able, because I think DHS really leaned forward right away, uh, it's been really helpful, I think, for some of the agencies that we've been able to share our guidance and our intent and our direction so that they can, you know, jump right in, jump right into the middle of this as well and move out. You have one of the most diverse workforces assignment-wise in the entire federal government, right up there with the Defense Department and VA. What are your component HR people telling you about the concerns, challenges that they're having in dealing with all of the ver- the wide variety of assignments, workplaces that people need to be that can't work from home, Border Patrol agents, TSA uh, frontline screeners, those kinds of things? Right. I think that the number one concern for both our leadership and, and our HR community is protecting our workforce. And so the partnership between our occupational health and safety and our medical professionals, our doctors, Um, and the HR community has become stronger than ever. And so twice a week we have calls with, we bring in both the health and safety folks as well as the HR directors and then a variety of other um, component offices as well. But the point is, is that every call is focused on how do we take care of the front line? I think for, I will say that for those that can telework, what our efforts have been with them is staying connected with them and helping them understand how to deal with stress and anxiety from a personal standpoint, because many of them have children at home now. So it's one thing to telework and you're home alone, and now it's another thing to telework and you've got three little girls, right, that, are, that need your attention at the same time that you're trying to be on a conference call. Mm-hmm. So we've really been focusing for that community on how to take mental breaks and things. For our front line, what we're focusing in on is how do we protect them, number one? How do we make sure that they have the the personal protective equipment that that they need? How do we institute things like maybe you put up a plexiglass barrier so that they can keep a six-foot distance? How do we make sure that they have enough gloves, enough respirators, um, things that they they actually need to be able to function and do their job? And then those that are high risk and can't do their job, how do we ensure that they're on weather and safety leave and things that they need to so that they can – take care of themselves because this is a marathon right this is not a sprint and so we need to make sure that our workforce stays as healthy as it possibly can as we rotate people in and out of their different shifts we have about a minute left angie you mentioned weather and safety leave and i've had a number of rank and file federal employees say over the last couple of weeks i didn't even know that was a thing and i've been working for government for a long time are there resources that employees have available to them that maybe you think they've been underutilizing so far um, it, you know, there's always going to be things that pop up that some of us say, wait, what? You can use weather and safety leave? Because if you think about it, people don't realize it, but they were using the weather part of the weather and safety leave. You know, every time we had snowflake in D.C., for example, and the government was shut down, you weren't able to telework. Um, some of those people were on the weather part of the weather and safety. So being able to um, creatively stretch Uh, The limits on using things like weather and the safety part of the leave uh, has been important for us. So for DHS, our employees have the employee resource page that's available not just for them, but for their families as well, and actually the community at large. And so 
we find keeping everyone informed is probably our, our best defense right now. Angela Bailey, I can't imagine how busy you are now. Thanks for taking time to talk about what's going on at DHS. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you, Francis. Have a great day. Up next, the coronavirus's impact on benefits for federal employees. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's changing in the way your advocates work for you? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky is the first member of the Senate to test positive for the coronavirus. Several members of the House are positive, too, and many more are self-quarantining. Jessica Clement is staff vice president of policy and programs, the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, thanks for coming on. This is happening for the le at the least opportune time as far as Congress is concerned, right in the middle of when ordinarily they would start working on some of the most important legislation of the year. How is this affecting the way that you and your colleagues go about advocating for federal employees? Hey, Francis, thanks so much for having me remotely. Um, good to be here with you talking about this. You know, we've had to switch focus, right? A lot of legislative priorities on NARF's plate for this year, and now we're focused on this stimulus bill. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty typical of legislation. You have to be able to turn and pivot um, at any given moment, this is this is really no different. But it does change what we advocate for on behalf of the federal community, not how we do it. How has that changed? When I think of a coronavirus stimulus bill, I don't think firsthand, or first off the top of my head, of that being something that could impact federal employees. But I suppose with the threat being to everybody in the United States, that includes feds too. Right, and I think your show yesterday did a really good job of touching on some of those issues, so I don't wanna spend time repeating that here. What we've been working on is provisions in the stimulus that will have an impact on the federal community. One of them is a waiver for the required minimum distributions from 401ks and traditional IRAs. If you are over the age of 70 and a half or were over the age of 70 and a half, 70 and a half at the end of this year, you have to take money out of your IRA or your traditional 401k account. Um, and that amount was based on the balance on December 31st of last year. Um, well, your 401k probably looks a little different now than it did three months ago. Um, so this is one of the issues we've been working on. There's also been some talk of social security benefits and if anything changes for social security recipients, you know, on behalf of the NARF members, it's important that we do the same for federal retirees, mainly those who don't get Social Security, like your CSRS retirees. Are you finding that members of Congress and staffers are doing the same things that other people are doing, switching to virtual meetings and phone calls and all of that kind of stuff in place of the person-to-person -person meetings that you would ordinarily undertake in a time like this? Yes, we, we have found that. We had a meeting scheduled for last week that even you know, more than a week before uh, that meeting was set to take place. It was moved to a teleconference. I have found the staff on the Hill to be 
responsive, just like any other day. I do get the sense that most of them are probably working remotely, um, but that doesn't really change um, business. Conversation that I had with a leader in the federal community over the weekend kind of revolved around the idea that operationally, this should be maybe similar to a shutdown, what we should do strategically, because we don't know when it's going to end and we don't know what the end result is going to be. We don't know what we're going to have to work with when we hit the end. Does that work in the area of benefits and, and the kind of work that you're doing on behalf of federal employees? Does that analogy make sense? It makes sense, and it's funny you say that because I have used some of the same terms in communicating with OPM in particular, and you know was told, no, this is very different. You know, you can't use shutdown terms in a situation like this. And I was like, well, what are the terms? You know, no one knows what the terms are because this is an unprecedented situation. I think what we're finding is, and this is true of businesses like NARF with a small number of employees and businesses as large as the federal government with two million. It's 2020. We need to figure out how to do our jobs remotely. Mm -hmm. what, what and is, I think that's going to be a conversation moving forward. That's kind of where I wanted to go. What are we learning from all of this, do you think, that will apply to the way that you personally, that NARF as an organization, and that you and your colleagues in the federal employee advocacy community in general will kind of strategize moving forward? Because obviously telework is one, but it strikes me that people's minds are changing about things very quickly that we thought might never happen if they ever happened. That's that's absolutely true. We're experiencing it experiencing that at NARF as well as, you know, with the entire federal community. Um, one of the things that I found just from working remotely now for a week and that my colleagues have found is that we're putting a lot of strain on Wi-Fi because mm -hmm. everyone's home, right? I'm over Wi-Fi. I'm not connected um, via an, an intranet or a wired system, right? I'm using my Wi-Fi. Um, there are two people in my household using this Wi-Fi. You know, I have coworkers who have kids or their spouses are also home working. You know, this is putting a big strain on the our you know productivity. So far, I've been pretty lucky, but we'll see. And the same goes for the federal government. You know, do employees have devices they can take take home? Maybe they have phones, but do they have laptops? Do they have, can they have access to their shared drives? Um, this is really, we really need to rethink how we do those processes. So if we were ever faced with this situation again, you know, we're better prepared than we are right now. Jesse, thanks very much as always. I appreciate your flexibility and uh, look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for having me, Francis. Our coverage of the impact of the coronavirus on the federal marketplace continues at 8 and 11 every night this week on WJLA 24-7 News. And we want to hear from you. You can send us your questions to info at govmatters.tv or tweet us at govmatters.tv. The White House is asking private sector technology companies for help in the coronavirus response. It's asking to help prevent the spread of misinformation and to aid medical researchers in data analysis. Nick Sinai, senior advisor at Insight Partners and former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer. Nick, welcome back. Thanks for coming on. What's the right role for a public-private sector partnership in a situation like this? Hi, Francis. Um, well, so the most important thing is all, all hands on deck approach. And so, however, uh, technology companies, however, the private sector can help, they, they should. Uh, and in this case, uh, a, a series of, of uh, for-profit and non-for-profit 
So Chan Zuckerberg, Google, uh, Jones Cagle, uh, Microsoft, um, the uh, um, NIH came together to make 30,000 scientific uh, articles, uh, some of them pre-publication and all of the underlying data available to the general public and to medical researchers. And so it's a, it's a great example of uh, let's open up the, the research and scientific data uh, to, to help the American people and, and, to, and to help the, the, uh, the globe, frankly. We've never had anything quite like this before, I don't think, but what can we take from other crisis situations that could show us how the technology industry could work effectively with government today? Well, I think we, we do have examples of, of past crises. I mean, I, uh, I've, I've observed the um, uh, Superstorm Sandy uh, response, which of course was, was nothing like, like this scale, uh, but we saw uh, presidential innovation fellows. We saw uh, uh, teenagers uh, um, coming together in New Jersey to help map uh, um, uh, where power was and where gas stations were with the Department of Energy. So on a smaller scale, we've seen these kinds of things. This is really uh, unprecedented. And so uh, technology companies, uh, um, startups, uh, the civic tech community, uh, everyone is looking for ways to, to come together and help. I think another example uh, I might uh, offer here, Francis, is is the Federation of American Scientists are working together uh, with New Jersey Office of Innovation and NYU GovLab, and together they've created a Ask a Scientist website. And so that essentially helps answer questions uh, that the public may have about uh, uh, COVID-19. And the benefit to this, this is getting incorporated into the uh, New Jersey uh, websites. And the uh, importance of this is it allows the New Jersey officials to focus on providing information about New Jersey resources uh, to New Jersey residents uh, uh, while also answering the, the latest questions. And, and as the uh, scientific information changes and as, as we have new questions about this, this rapidly evolving uh, pandemic, um, a network of, of, of scientists are able to um, take CDC information and, and answer uh, the public's questions. Go back to your deputy CTO days, Nick, and think about where the gaps are or were between what the government can do to work effectively with private sector partners and vice versa. Yeah, so one of the challenges is, is that there's so much incoming uh, offers of help of, uh, you know, can we, can we help with, with, with resources, with people, with free, free tools? Uh, so there's, there's so many things that, that come in at you. Um, and, and one of the things that I would encourage uh, folks outside of government to realize is, is that inside of government, uh, uh, they are scrambling, they're working uh, 16, 18 plus hours a day uh, on this response. And so to the extent that you can communicate asynchronously and, and make offers available, but uh, don't feel bad if you're not hearing back uh, from officials that day or that week because uh, they, they may hear you, but they, they're working on the most important thing for the next 24 to 48 hours. Um, and so it, it really is important to uh, also use existing tools and platforms. I think that's another thing that I would stress. Uh, and in that, in that vein, um, a number of insight companies have made offers of free resources and free tools uh, to federal government and to nonprofits helping with the COVID response. We just have a couple of minutes left, Nick, but something that you just said there strikes me as potentially an important area for private sector organizations to be able to back the government up, and that is the government's working on a 24 to 48 hour 
basis, uh, basically in triage mode for the foreseeable future because we don't know how this will morph and change. And it strikes me that the private sector organizations would be good at helping play the long game. What, what's coming over the horizon a month from now or six months from now through data analytics or some other kinds of things with some of these tools that you're talking about? Am I on the right track there? I think so. I think, I think uh, um, private sector companies can, can help. Uh, and I would say, uh, I'd even broaden that. I'd say the general public, uh, the civic tech community, uh, um, folks who are not immediately involved in the response can help think about the, the, the longer term implications. Uh, this, is, this is clearly going to be something that's going to go on for months and, and maybe longer than that. And so to the extent they can think about uh, um, what, what problems and challenges government is going to, to face and think about how their business or nonprofit can, can support those coming challenges, uh, um, you know, that, that's a way to, to help anticipate where, where government is, is going to need to go. Nick Sinai, thanks very much as always. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.